Father in heaven, we're asking that you would speak to our hearts now in a special way. Lord, the book of Job is intricate and beautiful and deep. And Lord, we ask that you would reveal your beauty to us right now. Lord, captivate our hearts, grasp our attention. We ask that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit in this place, Father, that it would be you that speaks and that your word would accomplish what you send it for this morning. Father, we ask this because of Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you for not holding back from us today. Thank you for changing our hearts, for leading us to a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It was one of those trips. Some of you try to avoid them as you are traveling across the country. You're in airports and you try to do whatever you can to avoid a ultra-long layover. Well, she was unable to do this. She was in an airport, a big airport, and she had several hours in which to kill time. And as she was there in the airport, she walked into one of the stands and she looked around. She found a book that looked interesting to her. She grabbed the book. Then she found a bag of cookies and she grabbed the bag of cookies and she put them in her bag. She walked back to the waiting area where she sat down and promptly began reading her book when all of a sudden she noticed something. There was a gentleman next to her who was reaching into her bag of cookies and had taken a cookie and was beginning to eat it. She looked at the man. She grabbed in the bag and grabbed a cookie and began to eat and went back to reading her book. When the nerve of that man, she saw out of the corner of his eye as he reached into the bag and grabbed a second cookie and began to eat it again. She couldn't believe it. She ate the cookie as fast as she could and she reached into her bag again and began to eat the cookie and she watched again out of the corner of her eye. This ungrateful man was grabbing her cookies again. He hadn't even asked. She might have been willing to share if he'd asked, but what was she doing? She was stealing his cookies. So she again reached in the bag and grabbed another cookie back and forth. It went until finally... There was one cookie left, and she wondered what would happen when the man reached into the bag, and of all the nerve, he broke the cookie in half. With a smile on his face, he handed her a cookie and ate the other half. Ungrateful wretch, she thought in her mind. How could he do this? Who does he think he is? I can't stand to be here. I can't wait till they call for my flight. Finally, they called for her flight, and she stormed off not even daring to look at the man who had been so ungrateful, so unkind to her. As she waited in line, she got on the plane, she found her seat, she sat down and she thought, ah, I'm going to go back to reading my book. She began to open her bag and as she looked into her bag to grab her book, there was her bag of cookies. Unopened. And she realized who the ungrateful wretch really was. She recognized that all along she'd been condemning that man for eating her cookies when the whole time she had been eating his cookies. That he was the one who was generously sharing when she thought that she was the righteous one in the story. I find a lot of similarities to the story of Job. As we looked last week, we looked at up to chapter 10 of Job, and we saw that Job begins to question God. God, why are the arrows of the Almighty in me? Why? I've been righteous. No, we don't need you to talk to us. I've been righteous. 
why have you done this to me? I don't understand, God. Why are you doing this to me? You have condemned a righteous man. It's unfair what you're doing to me. Go with me to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9 and verse 29. It says, If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? A few weeks ago, we looked at this man who was a righteous man. A man who was faithful in following God. A man who the Bible describes as perfect because he was so merciful. But the devil had come in, and we talked about this last week. He does this with all of us, and Revelation 13 reveals that he's going to do this in the end. He came in, and first he took away all of his stuff. The devil wants to tempt us, first of all, to no longer, to only serve, the devil wants to prove that we only serve God based on what he does for us. And then second of all, it says in Revelation 13 that It's going to come down in the end to not being able to buy or sell and there will be a death decree that those who don't worship the beast be put to death. The threat of of our lives being taken away is the second thing. And Job does both of these. First, he comes to God and asks for all of Job's possessions to be taken away. Then second of all, he comes and he says, well, Job's life has been spared. He's living a, a happy life even though he lost all of his stuff. And so God allows Satan to take that away from Job too. To prove that Job is only serving God out of the selfishness of his heart. It's only with hope of reward or fear of punishment that Job serves God. This is the only reason that he loves God. And this is what Job is saying in Job 9 and verse 29. If, if, if I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain. Why have I been faithful to you, God, if you're just going to condemn me? God, why are you eating my cookies? Verse 33, Job chapter 9 and verse 33, it says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job says, if only there were a mediator, if only there was somebody between me and God who could prove that I'm faithful, that God shouldn't be doing this to me. I don't deserve this. Job chapter 10, we read as he continues on in his complaints, and in verse 20 he says, are not my days few? Cease. Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort. God, just leave me alone. I want nothing more to do with you. You've been stealing my cookies, you ungrateful wretch. That's the attitude that Job has. And we read in the rest of the book of Job, if we were to summarize the book of Job, now don't get me wrong, Job is beautiful in poetic literature, wisdom literature. If you go through the book of Job, there is so much depth here. There's so much beauty here. So as I summarize the coming chapters of Job, don't get that it's just this simple. But this is what I see as I read through the book of Job. As as Job wraps up this argument in Job chapter 10 and says, God, you've condemned me. Why don't you just leave me alone? Zophar, another one of his not-so-good comforters in chapter 11 says this, God sees deeper than you do, Job. You are actually a sinner and that's why all this is happening. They keep going back and forth between this hope of reward, fear of punishment. Job, you're only being punished for all the evil that you've done, obviously. Job responds in verse 12, I am wise too. I know that God is great. This can't really be happening. 
Eliphaz in chapter 15 responds, well, your own mouth condemns you. We're all older than you and we're wiser than you. And we know from experience that it's the wicked who suffer. He, can, he summarizes in verses 20 to 35. Job then responds in chapter 16 and says, God is torturing me. Although I'm innocent, I really am innocent. And God continues to torture me. He's eating my cookies. I don't deserve this. Then Bildad responds in chapter 18. Why won't you listen to us? It's the wicked who are the ones who suffer. Back and forth throughout the book of Job, you see this play going back and forth as Job says, I'm innocent. His friends said, no, you're guilty. Obviously, you're guilty because look, your skin is cracked. You're, there are worms on your skin. You have boils. Obviously, you are being punished by God, Job. Then in chapter 21, Job begins to see something different. In chapter 21, Job asks the question, wait, then why do the wicked prosper? Okay, let's flip the coins. Why do we see the wicked out there and they are receiving the blessing of God apparently in their life? If it's the wicked who are punished, then why don't all the wicked look like me when they're enjoying their wealth and they have prosperity? Eliphaz responds in chapter 22 and says, you are actually wicked. And then he jumps into the specifics and begins to list all the ways that he's sure that Job has done wrong. Really the opposite of what we see described of Job's character. But this is the way that we tend to be in our criticism of people. As we go through an argument with somebody, if we're not agreeing with somebody, pretty soon we begin to list the specifics of how they have done wrong and what's wrong in their life. Miserable comforter Eliphaz was. Job in, verse, in chapter 23 then says, If only I could just state my cause before God. If only I could have a mediator before God. Back and forth, you see this play going on until in Job 31, finally, Job goes through and he says, look, if, if I've done wickedly, if I've gone after another man's wife, then let a man come and have my wife. If I've stolen somebody's goods, then let somebody come and steal my goods. If I've been unkind to my enemies, if I have coveted wealth, if any of these things, then let me be punished. But it, I haven't done this. Turn with me to Job chapter 33. Job chapter 33, we find that Job's friends are finally, Job chapter 32 in verse 1 actually, Job's friends finally give up. They say, well, Job just is sure that he's so righteous that he's done nothing wrong. Okay, what are we going to do? Job 32 in verse 1. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Job says, I've got it all together. You guys, your answers aren't sufficient for me because really I am righteous. And then suddenly another figure pops up in verse 2. The wrath of Elihu, that means Yahweh is my God. This is the name of this man. Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu, this young man we learn, this man who had refrained from speaking for so long because the others were older and wiser, and out of respect, he stopped from saying anything, but finally he can't stand it anymore. He's about to burst. He describes it like wine inside of a bottle that is pressurized and about to burst out of the bottle. 
He can't stand it anymore. And then also in verse 3, it says, also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet condemned Job. He said, this whole conversation is useless. Job, you keep on condemning God. And then your friends keep answering by saying, well, obviously you must be wicked and God's punishing you for your wickedness. This argument is going nowhere. Would you guys stop? And then Elihu jumps into his own answer. And sometimes Elihu has gotten a bad rap, but I think if you look carefully at how Elihu answers, you'll find much truth in what Elihu says. And you'll find that God doesn't condemn Elihu, or God doesn't judge Elihu in the end, along with the other three friends. There's a lot of good that comes out of what Elihu has to say. But let's jump down to chapter 33. And verse 32. Here's a key thing when you are dealing with somebody who you feel that they have, are in the wrong, that they're not doing right. This is something that Job's friends had missed. They'd come to Job with flattery and then they went in for the kill. But Elihu honestly wants to help Job. In verse 32, he says, Job, if you have anything to say, answer me, speak. For I desire to justify you. I want for you to be right, Job. I want for you to be justified. Friends, if you're in an argument, a disagreement with somebody, and your heart isn't for them to be justified, if you're not trying to help them in your discussion, then you may be right, but you're not going to get anywhere. We need the heart of Elihu, the heart that wants to justify the other person, the heart that looks for the best in the other person, the heart that is trying to help. Verse 34, or chapter 34, in verse 10, Elihu says something crucial. He says, therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. God isn't sinning here. God isn't doing wrong in this whole situation. We need to get that clear that God is to be justified. Verse 14, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Elihu is beginning to develop an argument, an argument that explains that God is the sustainer of all creation and that He has all power in heaven and on earth and that if He were just to withdraw His breath, that all flesh would immediately cease and go back to dust. Why is this helpful to Job? How does this help with this man whose flesh is cracked, whose skin is caked with worms, who has boils that are oozing, who's itching and in pain. How does this help Job? Down in verse 28. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. He goes on to say, chapter 35 is where the argument really begins to turn. Chapter 35 and verse 5 says, Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. Look, Job, there's a bigger reality. There's something more than you're realizing here. Look to heaven and see. And verse 6, note verse 6. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if 
your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Job is giving a picture here of who the real sufferer in the universe is. He's given a picture of who sin really hurts. David grasped this when he committed the sin against Bathsheba and murder, murdered Bathsheba's husband. What did he pray in Psalm 51? He said, against you and you only I have sinned. God is the one that sin hurts the deepest. God is the one who bears the burden of sin. God himself has taken the suffering on himself. And this is the picture that Elihu is is trying to bring out. Down in verse 4 of chapter 36, Elihu wants to assure Job that God is still with him. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. You can trust Job, you're complaining, you're condemning God, but the God who is perfect in knowledge, he's with you. Not only that, verse 5, Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. Job, trust that God is with you, that he's mighty, that he's loving, that he has your best in mind. Even in the midst of this suffering, Job, you can come through this And you can come out on the other side if you'll only trust God. Job doesn't respond to Elihu. Elihu goes on for many chapters. We'll skip through this, but I encourage you to read it on your own and get to chapter 38. Now think about this. If you are suffering and God comes and he says this to you, does it help you? Do you feel lifted up by this? For years I've read this chapter, and as I've read this chapter, I've thought, man, That's great and all. God is powerful. He's mighty. But how does this help Job who's suffering, who's going through this? How does this help me and my suffering and my trials and what I'm going through? I'm not sure how this is comforting God. Job chapter 38 and verse 1. Just imagine that God comes to you and says this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when, you laid the foundation, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. Clearly, this is a picture of an omnipotent, powerful God who created in a way that we can barely grasp. He was able to hold the, the, the waves in place. He, he put laws into nature that, that are beyond anything that we can grasp, Job. Have you commanded, verse 12 continues, the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it may take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Skipping down to verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? 
that you may take it to its territory, that you may know the path to its home. Do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Do you understand these things, Job? Have you entered the treasury of snow or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water or a path for the thunderball to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass? Job, are you the one who watches out to make sure that it rains in the massive fields over in Kenya? where there's nobody there but the lions? Are you the one who who watches in Siberia to see the grass spring up and the flowers come up? Jober, is that you who's taking care of these things? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone and the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? There's some amazing pictures here of God's wisdom and God's creative power and and it lines up with astronomy in fascinating ways. It goes on to talk about the great bear and her cubs, another constellation. It's, it's, It's amazing if you dig into this and look at the wisdom of God here. But jump down to... Uh, Verse 37, who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens in clumps and the clods cling together? Look at verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wonder wander about for lack of food. At first, this seems like God is not being compassionate, that God's saying, Job, just suck it up. You need to handle this. You need to act like a man. You need to realize that I'm greater than you and that I've created the universe and you're suffering and that's just too bad. But suddenly, a far more beautiful picture comes out. Just look at what the verse we just read says. Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and verse 24 for the answer to this question. Jesus, he wants his disciples not to be worried, not to be concerned about what's going on in their life. He wants them to have peace in the midst of the trials that they're going through. And in Luke 12 and verse 24, after telling them, why are you worried about your life? Why are you worried about your clothing? Why are you worried about your food? In verse 24, he says this, consider the ravens. He's saying the same thing that God came and said to Job, consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which having neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You see how Jesus takes this and he breaks it down for us to see that God is coming to Job and he's saying, look, who provides the food for the ravens? Who comes and and makes sure that their lives are taken care of? And if I'm doing that for them, how much more will I do that for you? 
Jesus comes and fills in the commentary and helps us to see that God is revealing to us his constant omnipresence, his constant love on this entire planet. Elsewhere, Jesus says, aren't the the sparrows valued more than a penny and yet how much more, if one of them falls, doesn't God notice? Doesn't it break the heart of God to see just a few birds fall? How much more valuable are you? You see the tender love and care of God that is beginning to come out here. I like what it says in the, in the, um, the book Steps to Christ, page 86. It says, And God cares for everything and sustains everything that he has created. He who upholds the unnumbered worlds throughout their immensity at the same time cares for the wants of the little brown sparrow that sings its humble song without fear. If we only grasp this, that God is caring. If you were to look out the window and you saw a tiny little bird out there, something that is so meaningless to most of us as humans, and you recognize that God has been providing for that bird every day of its life. That God has been tenderly watching out for it. That when that bird falls, when that bird suffers, if that bird gets a disease, that the heart of God suffers. The heart of God breaks for that bird. When the rich man feasts in his palace or when the poor man gathers his children about the scanty board, each is tenderly watched by the Heavenly Father. No tears are shed that God does not notice. Job, I see the tears that you're shedding right now. I watch out for those ravens. I know how to feed the ravens. How much more do I notice that you're scratching yourself with pot shards right now? That your skin is cracked? That you have worms caking your skin? How much more do I feel what you're going through, Job? I care for that little tiny bird that died yesterday. I care for you too, Job. No tears are shed that God does not notice. There is no smile that He does not mark. If we would but fully believe this, all undue anxieties would be dismissed. We would stop condemning God for stealing our cookies and we would start realizing that everything in our lives has come from God, that He is close to us, that He's intimate and personal and loving, and that He's all-knowing, and that if we trust that He's all-loving and all-knowing and present in our lives, then we can face any trial with confidence, not being worried about it, not complaining to God, but trusting to His omnipotence and His incredible love. This is what keeps being revealed back in Job chapter 38. We're going to go backwards through the chapters. We've read it this direction. Now look at verse 39 and 40. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Now when I think about a raven, I can understand how it needs help, but God explains that I also help the lions. They don't get fed if it's not for me helping them. Psalm 47 says exactly this. If you turn there quickly with me, Psalm chapter 147, describing the glory of God, goes into how he cares for all of his creatures. Psalm 147, and we'll go down to 
verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth. You, Sorry, that's Psalm 148. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God cares, and, and here's the proof of it, the psalmist says. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. He knows every detail about the stars. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise on the harp to our God. Verse 8, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. You remember how God told Job, are you the one who sends those storms to those desolate places and causes those little blades of grass to come up? In Luke 12, Jesus goes on to say, why do you worry about your clothing when God is the one who gives the lilies their clothing? And they're arrayed far more beautifully than Solomon. Why are you worried about the details of your life? Verse 9, he gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. God is the one providing for all of creation. God is the one who is there providing for the needs of his creation. Job, you can trust him. Jump back to Job 38 and verse 30. Something fascinating here. It's been talking about ice and about where does this ice come from. And then in verse 30, it says this, The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. I know, it's really profound. I thought so too when I first read it. Read it again, right? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. No, really. This illustrates the tender love of Jesus. Do you know how water works? It's fascinating, actually. I'll put a diagram up here. It's called the anomalous expansion of water. Those of you who are chemists will know that various liquids usually have different properties than water does. That's why it's called anomalous, the expansion of water. Water freezes on the top. We all know that. Maybe you've gone ice skating as a kid on top of a frozen pond. Water freezes on the top, and because it freezes only on the top, because it hardens over only on the top, the surface of the water, fish are able to swim all winter long on the bottom of a lake. Because what happens with water is that, unlike other liquids, as it decreases... or to summarize, we'll just basically put it this way. Until it gets to four degrees Celsius, it decreases in density, right? And when it gets to four degrees Celsius, it is at its densest form. And so the water that is four degrees Celsius sinks to the bottom of a pond or a lake or the ocean. And then you have above it will be the three degrees Celsius water, the two degrees Celsius water, the one degree Celsius water, because from four degrees it begins expanding. It begins expanding until it freezes at zero degrees. This seems normal to us because we freeze ice cubes in our fridge and we know that it will pop open a jar if we have a frozen jar, that, that water expands. But no other liquids, I shouldn't say no other liquids, but most other liquids are not like this. It's not normal in the natural world for liquids to do this, but this displays the loving care of God even for the tiny little fish that are swimming in winter. 
that they're able to swim under the ice, and the ice actually works as a blanket. Heat's not able to penetrate through it, and because it's frozen at the top, the, the, the water at the bottom stays liquid usually, not always, but most times, and the fish are able to survive the winter. Not only that, but they've done studies recently of fish in Antarctica. In the freezing waters in Antarctica, they actually have a form of antifreeze built into their blood. Jesus is watching out for the ravens, he's watching out for the lions, and he's watching out for the fish. He's trying to communicate to Job this loving kindness, this faithfulness to watch out for all of creation, this love that he has for every inch of his creation. Back in Job 38, verse 19, God asks the question, where is the way to the dwelling of light? In darkness, where is its place? Who's the one who can tell us the way to light? Thankfully, John chapter 1 tells us this. Go with me to John chapter 1 and verse 1. This will help to set the foundation for where Job's answer from God starts. John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. He's the creator of everything. This one that we call Lord and Savior. In Him was life, and the life was the what? Of men. The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The way of light is Jesus. The way to light is Jesus' word, because in the beginning God spoke, and there was light. Job, do you understand where light comes from? I can shed light onto your darkened problem if you'll only turn to Jesus. Going back to verse 8, Job chapter 38 Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling hand? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? Then I said, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Do you see that God designed this planet to not be like the planet that we see today? We see floods and disasters today, and insurance companies will tell you these are acts of God, but God said, I'm the one who, who put boundaries on these things. I'm the one who, who, who set limits on these things so that they wouldn't have to spiral out of control. See, Adam and Eve, when they took that fruit and they chose the path of selfishness, they chose to be under Satan's rule. They chose to let this world spiral out of control. And so in Genesis chapter 6, when when God comes down and he sees that the planet is filled with violence and wickedness, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, it says that his heart was grieved within him. His heart broke for what he knew was going to take place as he had to let go of those boundaries that he had created at creation and let the floodgates be unleashed. God's heart broke. This is the picture that we find throughout the Bible of a God who looks at our suffering and whose heart breaks. I understand this just a little bit. When in my relationship with Leah, she's sick. You know, recently, I think I may have been the one who was sick and and she was watching out for me, but we'll go back and forth. And usually most times when she's sick, I wish that there's some way that I could become sick instead of her. 
and that she could be well. You know how it is. Maybe you have a child who has a disease. Maybe you've had a loved one who's suffering and you wish that you could do something to ease their pain. But I don't love Leah as much as Jesus loves you. And so when your heart is breaking, when you're going through suffering, when you are racked with disease, no matter what happens in your life, imagine the heart of Jesus as he bears that pain upon himself, as he suffers knowing that this didn't have to happen, that this is a result of our choice to choose a way of selfishness, to choose a planet filled with sin, and he longs to provide a solution for us. Imagine the heart of Jesus on a daily basis as seven million people go through emotional, physical, all kinds of pain in their lives. Imagine his heartbreak as he loves each and every one of them more than you love your child, more than I love my wife. Imagine what God goes through on a daily basis. Do you still think he's taking your cookies? Or are we really condemning him when we cause this whole mess? So often we question God, we ask why, and God is able to handle that. He lets Job go on for a while and then he answers with this gracious picture of his loving and tender care for the ravens, for the lions, for the fish that are in the sea, for even the light that comes into our lives. Backing up a little bit further, in chapter uh, 38, verse 7, it says, when the, well, let's, let's start in verse uh, 4. Where were you when, the, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Look up in the Bible who the cornerstone is. You'll find that throughout the Old Testament and then in the New Testament that the cornerstone always points us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who, Colossians 1 and verse 17, it says, In him all things consist. Everything is held together by Jesus. Acts 17 and verse 28 says that in him we live and move and have our being. Do you see the picture that's coming out here? Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you even understand what these foundations involve? And then we see this beautiful picture down in Revelation chapter 13. Go with me there. We saw last week how in Revelation chapter 13, it reveals that this same test of selfishness will will come to us just like it came to Job. When Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it describes those who don't fall into this worship of the beast. Revelation 13 and verse 8 says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that's the beast, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, the foundation of this world is paved. It was set by Jesus and his grace. From the very beginning, there was a plan, if we chose the route of selfishness, that he would rather that we exist than that he exists. That Jesus said, I'll, I'll go all the way in the path of unselfishness. I will go to the point of dying the second death. I will reveal to them my love. 
in a way that they'll finally see. I will bear their iniquities. This is the picture that we find in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is it describes what Jesus went through on the cross. In verse 4 it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I've often thought of that as that it's talking about Jesus on the cross and what he went through on the cross. And it is describing that, but it's describing an even bigger picture of the God who throughout history has borne our every grief, our every sorrow, our every tear, our every disease, our every suffering, everything that we've ever gone through and every person on this planet has ever gone through and every bird, every lion, every creature on this planet has ever gone through has fallen onto God himself. He has borne it. Romans 8.22 says that all creation groans. And it is God who's bearing all of this suffering, all of this grief, because he's the foundation of it all. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Education, page 263, says this fascinating thing about what God has done for us. Sometimes we look to the cross and we see the love of God. But I want you to realize that that is just a picture of what God has been doing for you, for Job, for every human being who has ever existed. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. It didn't just start when Jesus came and was incarnate and began to walk on this planet. No, like the revelator says, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Continues, don't miss this line. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that, from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. The cross only reveals what throughout history sin has been doing to the heart of God and what my sin continues to do if I choose to continue to rebel against God. The cross reveals the hideousness of sin so that it leads me to hate sin and to want to turn away from it because of His incredible love and mercy and grace in my life. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings grief to him. As the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, the heart of the infinite Father is pained in sympathy. Our world is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not dwell on upon or even allow our thoughts to dwell upon did we realize it as it were the burden would be too terrible yet god feels it all in order to destroy sin and its results he gave his best beloved job were you there when i laid the foundations of this planet were you there when i set the cornerstone job You already have a mediator. His name is Jesus Christ. And he was slain from the foundation of the world. He feeds the ravens. He cares for the lions. 
He watches out for the fish, and he cares for you too, Job. Job, I'm here for you. I'm here in the midst of your suffering. I'm bearing your suffering, your griefs, your sorrows, and I'm bearing the sins of this entire planet so that each and every day another day can go on. Friends, without the mercy, the grace, the love of God, we wouldn't be able to take one breath. We wouldn't be able to have another heartbeat. But because Jesus is love, because the foundation of this universe is unselfish love, because love is greater than death and greater than sin, because he overcame sin on the cross for you, we can have life today. That makes all of my suffering pale in comparison. That makes me be able to go through the day looking to Jesus and clinging to him as a savior in every time of trouble. So I encourage you, go to the cross. Remember that that is where the victory was won and that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Whatever you're going through today, you may be dealing with financial trials. You may be dealing with physical suffering. You may be dealing with loved ones who are going through pain and you can't understand why this could happen in their lives. Remember that God is a God of love, that he is watching out for you and for your loved ones. And if you forget this, go back to the cross. Keep looking to Jesus lifted on the cross because this is a revelation to our senses that have become so dull of the pain that is caused to the heart of God by sin and of the victory that he has won for you and me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for going all the way for us. And thank you for giving us this picture of a God who loved us more than he loved his own existence, who was willing to lay down his own life, who is willing to sacrifice absolutely everything for us. And God, we ask that we would meditate upon that, that we would fix our eyes on that, that we would daily go to the cross, that we wouldn't let a moment pass by, that we wouldn't live lives complaining and condemning you for taking our cookies, when in reality, you're the one who's been giving us your cookies all along. Oh God, We pray that you would break our hearts today and that you would fill us with your love and with your grace today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.